Hello, I'm Andrew Gentile. And I'm Mariana. And you're listening to the second episode of Behind the Flicks. This show is all about me sharing as many facts as I know about filmmaking and directors and behind-the-scenes info about movies and whatnot to Ariana. And you'll join us for the ride. So, Ariana, can you give us a little review of the movie that we are talking about this week? Yeah, yeah, why not? It's called Taxi Driver, and it's about this kid who's like 20-something, and he's a taxi driver in New York, and he's a little off his rocker. That's all I got for you. There's no way to explain this movie. I feel like if somebody had told me what this movie was about, I still would have watched it and like probably just would have gone down a completely different path than whatever they told me. Because that's what the movie does. It takes you on a journey and you don't know how to feel about this guy and it's just a ride from beginning to end. It's a good time. That sounds about right. And what grade, what what star would you give it? Ooh, I would give it like A minus. Wow. I'd say. Because <laughs> it does everything pretty, pretty darn flawlessly. It touches on some pretty dark, crazy subjects. And it, I feel like it presents them the best way it can. And I like that. It was, a, I don't know, who directed this one? In this second episode, we'll be covering some facts about Martin Scorsese's. That's who directed it. Oh, Martin Scorsese, yeah. He he bit off a lot with this one. I thought he did a good job. Uh, I'm going to go further than you. I'm going to say this is his 1970s masterpiece, personally. Ooh. I mean, I, I honestly think this is like an A-plus film for me. Yeah. So, but I appreciate your opinion. I respect you. And you are the movie critic around here. Oh, yes. With my, with my limited experience and my love of movies. Hell yeah. <laughs> You know, when we did Wizard of Oz, I was expecting some happy stories. And so I like because the subject matter of the movie and now that we're doing Taxi Driver, I was like a little scared that these are going to be darker ones. The Taxi Driver stories are much lighter than the Wizard of Oz stories. Okay, good. I have hope. Comparatively. So to backtrack a little bit, Paul Schrader was born into a Calvinist family and did not see a movie until his late teens. As soon as he did, he watched as many movies as he could, leading him to become a film critic and, most pertinently to this episode, a screenwriter. Despite successfully selling a screenplay for the film The Yakuza to Warner Brothers for an unprecedented amount at the time, 325 grand, Schrader eventually found himself broke and depressed. Schrader claimed that when he ended up in the emergency room for an ulcerous condition, he realized that he had barely spoken to anyone for weeks. Through his loneliness... Schrader came up with a metaphor for a character who wanders the streets alone, yet in his own world. A taxi driver. Wow. That seems very fitting. I mean, the whole first part of the movie is about his, like, loneliness as a taxi driver and how he's dealing with it. So that's cool. It came from, like, personal experience. It shows that inspiration can come from anywhere as a filmmaker. Yeah. And what he turned it into, like, wow. (laughs) Exactly. And what's amazing is that he wrote the first two drafts in two weeks. To paraphrase Schrader, God, I wish I could go back to that. Really? Did you did the script change much? Do you know? Gorsese uh, made a few changes to it, which we will cover uh, some of those changes in just a moment. So originally, Paul Schrader approached Brian De Palma to direct the film. De Palma, if you are unaware, Ariana, was the filmmaker who would go on to make such classics as Carrie, Dress to Kill, and The Untouchables. De Palma felt that the script was better suited to fellow director and friend, Martin Scorsese, 
Just as a brief aside, De Palma and Schrader later did collaborate on the screenplay for De Palma's Obsession, which ended very unhappily and ended their creative partnership. Wait, wait, whose creative partnership again? Uh, De Palma's and Schrader's. Oh, oh, dang. Yeah, sometimes that happens. All over a movie. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Having had a happy collaboration with Robert De Niro on Mean Streets, Martin Scorsese cast him as the eponymous taxi driver, Travis Bickle. To research for the role, De Niro actually drove a taxi cab in New York. Wow. (laughs) I mean, the movie depicts that as being kind of scary and gross. (laughs) That was back when New York was really scummy. For example, I believe it was in Times Square. You know how there's like porno theaters in the uh, movie? Yes, which I did not know existed. Like that was all along Times Square. You didn't know porno theaters existed? No, like I've only, like my history goes back to like maybe video stores or like the X-rated section in a video store, but I didn't know they had full-blown like movie theaters dedicated to dirty movies. Thought maybe that was like, oh, come Friday night, it's dirty night. (laughs) Well, then you'll be shocked to know that there was a movie called Deep Throat, uh, which was a porno movie that at the time in the 70s was the highest grossing independent film of all time. Holy crap. <laughs> I knew that movie because I watched the, like, uh, biography, I guess, type movie with Amanda Seyfried. <laughs> That's the only reason I know about that movie. <laughs> Pornos were popular. Oh, Ariana, you are so innocent. <laughs> After having won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for his role as Don Corleone in The Godfather Part Two, De Niro picked up a passenger in his cab. The passenger knew that De Niro had won the Oscar a couple weeks prior and asked him, have things gotten really this bad for you? (laughs) It's like, no, they're getting better, man. This is just research. Hey, man, that's Hollywood. Yeah, this is what we do. Yeah. And so in the role of the underage prostitute, Jodie Foster uh, was cast in that role and her mom and uh, who who had helped her uh, get roles and she... They were totally cool with her playing a prostitute. She claimed that Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro were totally embarrassed whenever they filmed the sexual scenes between her and Robert De Niro. To paraphrase her, she said, this is my job. I'm I'm totally fine. (laughs) How old was she, actually? I believe she was the age of her character. Oh my gosh. (laughs) But she wasn't really 12 and a half. Like, that's the only reference to her age that is said in the movie. Believe it or not, Jodie Foster was 12 at the time of the filming. What? She was actually 12? Uh, yeah. Oh, my head just hit the table. Guys, that was... That's crazy. Because her counterpart, Matthew, was like easily in his 30s or 40s. Because, oh man, those scenes with her were so good. Originally, the the character of Sport was uh, written by Schrader to be betrayed by a black actor. Schrader's reasoning was that he wanted to place emphasis on Bickle's racism, which is less overtly emphasized in the final film. Knowing that the film's content was incendiary enough, Scorsese cast Harvey Keitel as the character instead. Schrader later acknowledged that this was the right move. I think so, too. Because when you watch it and you know that there's a lot of racism going on, and but it's all it's not it's like nonverbal. It's like he it's like dirty looks and like moments that they give between him and like the colored people in the movie. So to have the ending be what it was, if those people were black, like it, it definitely I feel like it would have taken away from the whole experience. 
Well, um, okay. Here's here's actually a discussion to to talk about between you and me. I I hope I hope this is okay for me to say, and we can edit this part of the, part of the podcast out if you're not okay with me saying it. Uh, you are uh, in a minority. Uh, not only are you part Hispanic, part Italian, but you are uh, identify as gay. Am I correct? Yes. <laughs> when you see depictions of, uh, like, for example, racism in movies and uh, homophobia in movies, uh, how does that make you feel? Like, uh, does that does that depend on the context? Does it depend on the point that the movie's making? Like, how would you describe that? Um, usually when I... And this is a big philosophical question. It is. It's like, let me just stroke my beard for a minute and get curious about it. Um, honestly, when I see depictions in movies, I have a moment of being grateful because I'm from a part of California that is very diverse and I haven't outright seen that much um, racism or homophobia. I, you know, I grew up, I, I was accepted. I never really had anybody turn away from me. So, um, but because I'm involved in the community and I hear stories, I know that it exists. So seeing it in movies is like the the taste that I get of what it's really like for other people. And I like, I'm grateful for it because it educates me a little. So like, it's hard to watch, but I'm glad that somebody's pointing it out in whatever way it comes out in. It's like any piece of information or exposure that it can get on like a mass media stage, like a film is a good thing. What if uh, filmmakers use the depiction irresponsibly or wrong? How does that make you feel? Um, it, and this is not relating to Taxi Driver. It's just relating to films overall. It's just one of those double-edged swords things because it's like, yes, there's content going out. You know, it, it at least brings up questions of it to people that wouldn't normally see or ask questions about it. So you have to be a little grateful all the time, even if it's wrong. Um, but when it is wrong, it just kind of like, it's just disappointing more than anything. It's like... I wish that the people putting out this content were people that have genuine experiences with it as opposed to, you know, filmmakers or writers that, you know, just want to depict it how they want to. I mean, the, the fun thing about the fact that we have internet now and a bunch of different people seeing the same movie is that if it is depicted wrong, like we have a responsibility to be like, hey, that's that's not real or, you know, I'm an experienced, I'm experienced in that field or I've experienced things this way. And you can get information and talk about it like on a much bigger scale than ever before. So that's why like even if it is wrong, you just it's the point that it brings up the questions and the conversations in the first place that are needed in a lot of different areas, even here at home in the U.S. So like it's frustrating and it, I wish that people that understood the content were the people that putting out the content. But at the same time, it opens up doors still for those conversations so that filmmakers and people that are authentic to the cause have an opportunity to be like hey come come see what i made here come see my stories this is what it is from the other perspective to educate people i'm not surprised and i shouldn't be surprised but that's a really uh, even like level-headed even keel response to uh, certain wrong depictions of minorities in movies so i appreciate that perspective and uh and i well i uh I suffer from uh, depression, anxiety, and mood swings. So I have uh, experience in uh, mental and seeing depictions of mental illness in movies. And basically, I, I mean, this is totally a tangent, unrelated to Taxi Driver. Well, actually, it's kind of related in terms of PTSD. Uh, I don't have PTSD, but uh, Travis Bickle certainly probably does. Uh, 
and I've had a lot of experience with like feeling isolated and lonely. That being said, this is much less nuanced than your argument. Um, than, or well, than what you were saying. Like, for example, when I hear a joke about, about mental illness and I like the comedian's other stuff and I think the comedian is, is coming from the right place. Like when the joke about mental illness comes up, I just have to shrug my shoulders and say, well, it's kind of my turn. Oh, so it's like you have this experience with this one thing being mental illness, but all the people that maybe say have experience with other things that he was joking about had to had to like take their punches with the jokes as well. So now like hearing it from now, it's like, okay, now it's come to you. I just kind of have to roll with it. Exactly. Is it the same deal like in movies and stuff? Because I, I feel like there's been a lot of movies, especially in the past like couple decades, of depictions of mental illness for sure. Right. And I mean, I don't have any experience with it, you know, and seeing it, is it hard for you like to see if it, because I mean, there's so many different ways that people experience mental illness. Is it hard for you to like decipher like is that being honest or is that just a different perspective? You know, is that the way that person is experiencing mental illness and I just you just kind of accept it or do you ever get that feeling of like, oh, they're doing it wrong? What's interesting is that let's take, for example, uh, Joker, which I think is a fantastic movie. And the reason is that I think it's because spoiler alert for Joker. It, it's basically saying, okay, so the failure of the American mental health care system creates a villain and leads to violence. And I'm, I'm just watching the movie in the theater and I'm thinking to myself, I think this is just a documentary because it's so real to me that, and, and it was weird to me that people were outraged by like, by certain aspects of the movie. It's like, I, this is so true though. This is, this is definitely what happens in real life. Except, you know, instead of the creation of a supervillain, it's more like mass shootings that's happening. Mm, wow. Meanwhile, for example, in Dress to Kill, there's a character who has, uh, like, multiple personality disorder. And first of all, I've, I've, I don't have that, and so I'm not going to comment on that. But um, they, I've been to a, into a, uh, checked into a psychiatric hospital for like 10 days like they depicted as like one nurse entering into like a room with multiple beds and and maybe that's what some mental hospitals psychiatric hospitals were like but that's certainly not what my experience was but at the same time it's like well this is just a fun movie it's just a silly movie so by the way dress to kill is kind of a dated film that being said it, god it's just it's just so much fun so i i can forgive it yeah your love of film kind of trumps that little spark of like mm, that's not totally honest this is fantastic book uh called easy riders raging bulls written by peter biskind and it's pretty much a comprehensive uh it's almost like a textbook of uh movie facts and stories starting from 1965 to like the mid 80s where uh, all these uh great artists emerged from it's a fantastic book because if any of it's true, it's like, wow, that's that's so wild and out there. That's like, oh, my God, how, how can any of that happen? So basically, whenever we cover a film between the mid 60s to like the late to the mid 80s, it's basically basically going to be like I'm gushing over Easy Riders Raging Bulls. <laughs> OK, 
Okay, that being said, this is one fact that I've taken from Easy Rider's Raging Bulls. The MPAA originally rated Taxi Driver X for its violence. Columbia Pictures, the studio behind the film, told Scorsese that he had to get the film an R rating. He had to do whatever he could to get an R rating. He had to like change this amazing film that he had already made. So Scorsese was so incensed by this idea that he had to change his film and was so unwilling to budge that one night he was planning on shooting an executive at Columbia. What? And by the way, this was back when Martin Scorsese was on cocaine, so uh, he probably would have done it. (laughs) Okay, what stopped him? Many of Scorsese's filmmaking friends had to talk him down from that plan. That's how you know this is a passion project. Yeah. He was willing to go down for it. Using the archaic post-production color-correcting techniques of the time, Scorsese washed out the climactic shootout. That change got him his R rating. Well, dang. I guess that's not... That's. I mean, of all the sacrifices he would have had to make, like that's pretty good. I think he, he found a, the best solution he could have. Scorsese didn't expect the film to make any money. He just did it as a passion project. But despite the film's grim subject matter, Taxi Driver was a critical and box office hit winning the top prize at the Cannes Film Festival. Scorsese, Schrader, and De Niro had made it in Hollywood. I, I mean, rightfully so. That's pretty pretty sick. It's nice to see the, the movies that launched these guys, you know, because everybody knows who Martin Scorsese is. Yeah, I mean, the movies that launched these guys, they're like, because he's still making movies. Like, it's 50 years later almost, and he's still in the business. Like, it's just cool to know that if you're a filmmaker, you can go out there at any point in time with anybody and you just, you know, pick up the projects that speak to you. You'll find something. Closing questions, comments, thoughts. Oh, boy. Let me see. Let me see. I mean, there's an endless amount of thoughts on this movie. Was it shot in New York? Oh, yeah. It was definitely shot in New York. Yeah. Okay. So for the, for the listeners at home, we tried uh, recording this podcast uh, like... A few days ago, and our internet connection was so bad that uh, we're trying again. Uh, we got on this whole tangent about uh, the line, you talking to me? Could you repeat what you told me when uh, you first saw that? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I couldn't believe that. Like, because I'd never seen it before, um, you know, the few days ago before we recorded, we were attempting to record this podcast. And my whole life, like, that line is so famous. I always thought he was talking to someone. Like another human being. And to find out that he was just talking to the mirror, <laughs> it just, it blew my mind. I thought that was, it just, I, I couldn't believe that I've gone my entire 26 years of existence not knowing that, that he was talking to himself. And what's amazing about that scene is that Scorsese was literally lying on the floor while Robert De Niro was doing that, like just improvising in front of the mirror. Because the traffic outside was so loud, he didn't think he was getting any sound, and uh, and he was listening through his headphones. And Scorsese said, just keep repeating it because I can't hear you. To paraphrase him. <laughs> through a good sound recording and good sound mixing, they were able to get the most famous line in the movie. The music in this movie was super noticeable, too. I mean, I remember, I remember taking notes on it and everything because in the beginning, like, it opens up. The way that it feels is, like, exactly like a horror movie. It's, like, super suspenseful and dark and you don't really know. It's, like, dun, dun, dun. And then within, like, a second, it only does that for, like, maybe a minute or two. And then it transitions into this very romantic, like, violin, sweet sound. 
and it was such a good setup for what ends up happening in the movie and in the end it brings it back the same exact way it goes from like horror to like sweet romance and it's like it's so good like this movie would not be the same at all without the sound mixing that happened and the music and the score that it was put to it it was so amazing I totally agree with that. And thank you so much because I totally forgot to tell you a huge fact about this movie, which is the music. <gasps> the music was composed by longtime Alfred Hitchcock collaborator Bernard Herrmann. What? Who collaborated on like Vertigo and Rear, and, uh, Rear Window. And also, I believe his second movie that Bernard Herrmann ever scored was Citizen Kane. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> So he has quite the track record. And what's amazing about uh, this score is that Bernard Herrmann, on Christmas Eve, uh, conducted the score, went up to his hotel room after the conducting was done, and died. What? Like for like for Taxi Driver? Uh, taxi Driver was the last score he conducted. Oh my gosh. That's crazy. I mean, he was obviously a little older, I'm guessing, because he worked with Alfred Hitchcock. I think I'd be okay with it if I were him, this being my last movie. I mean, it's not a bad note, it's not a bad note to go off on. <laughs> we gotta try to fit in those those uh, one-liners of yours in these, because, oh man. Waka waka. Well, thanks for that. that. I'm glad you didn't forget. I'm glad I reminded you. Listeners, if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes... Shoot us an email at independentcreatorstudios at gmail.com. And if you are so inclined, please rate us and write a review on iTunes or SoundCloud. We'd love to hear your feedback. Behind the Flicks was created and recorded by myself and Ariana. I researched, wrote, and edited this episode. My name is Andrew Gentile. This has been an Independent Creator Studios production. (laughs) 